Well, good morning. If you're a guest, my name is Cody Alvarez, um, and we're so grateful that you're here with us. And I would love to meet you after the service. I'm, I'm so excited to get to open, open the Bible with you today. We're, so we've been in the book of, uh, nope, that's where we're going. We've been in the book of Galatians at this point for a long time. And we're done, praise the Lord. And it was a good study, but now we're starting a new study in the book of Ruth. So let's, let's ask the Lord's blessing on this time and let's jump right into it. God, you are beautiful. God, I pray that you would show us your beauty in your sovereignty and how you provide for us through suffering and in suffering. God, I, I pray by, that by looking at the book of Ruth, we would see part of your master plan in sending us Jesus. God, I pray that we would trust you and we would just release control of our lives knowing that you love us more than we love ourselves. Help us now in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so like I said, open in the book of Ruth. Um, Ruth is between Judges and 1 Samuel. So if you hit the New Testament, you've gone too far. If you hit Genesis, you went too far the other way. Uh, <clears throat> we're gonna try to answer this, the, the question this morning, um, in Ruth is, are these things a product of a situation, the things of life, or is Ruth the picture of God's sovereignty? So a, a product or a picture is what we're talking about. And as we get started, we're going to, this week, just prepare you, we get, we're doing a lot of background. We're, we're going to set the situ, we're, we're going to look at the setting. We're going to try to understand the situation that Ruth and Naomi find themselves in, and we're going to create the context. Context is important. Context drives meaning. For instance, um, I know I've used this illustration before, but let's say I say, "Tell me what the word can means." Well, context matters. Uh, I can can a can of peas. It's it's used a bunch of different ways. So we need the context of this book. Or more than likely, we're going to take the meaning out of context and just apply whatever feels right. So we're going to spend a lot of time creating context this morning. Ruth is one of these unique books where, <clears throat> in the Bible where God does not speak in it directly. Um, God doesn't send a prophet. He doesn't send an angel. He doesn't show up himself. Um, he just leads the situations. He ordains the situations. Ruth and Naomi's story is one full of pain, anguish, and loss. And I think some of you, some of us can relate to that. These women are devastated by the circumstances that they find themselves in because of much death in their family. So we titled the series Sovereignty and Silence because... Though God does not speak in the book of Ruth, we can see him weaving together a tapestry of events from, we're going to go all the way back to Mount Sinai, through the narrative of Ruth to the cross of Jesus Christ on Calvary. These things are not, uh, th these things are, are interconnected. They, they're not standalone events. So in, in Naomi and Ruth's pain, we see God's provision every step of the way, even though they may not be able to see it themselves. 
I think you're going to find that the book of Ruth is filled with hope. And some of you find yourself in a dark situation, and my hope for you is that you would especially find hope in the book. Ruth is one of these books when, that I come back to over and over again devotionally when I find myself in loss or pain, um, in some sort of dark place, struggling with the different curveballs that life throws, to remind myself that God is in control and that he uses my suffering for his glory. I like how John Piper says it. He says that God does not waste, God will not waste one single ounce of your pain. He gets that from Romans 8. We'll look at that later. So <clears throat> if you've ever found yourself in a hopeless or in bitterness or anger in your life and, and you're, you're, you're in that place where you're like, where is God? And it doesn't seem like God cares and it seems like God is silent. The book and the message from the book from Ruth is going to give you comfort. So I want you to know overarchingly for this book that God is working through the silence and he's working in you through the silence too. And in his sovereignty, at the other end of the pain, you're going to be able to look back and see what he did with it. I think many of us can do that, right? Now, it's, it takes us to get often a long way on the other side of the pain, but we've seen him do that. In the story of hopelessness, God brings about a beautiful bloom of life. The book of Ruth ends with a child. These two childless widows are now in the bloodline of the king. Ruth gives birth, you'll find this in chapter 4, to Obed. And Obed is the father of Jesse. And Jesse is the father of King David. And they, from their line, comes the royal line that God brings forth King Jesus. It's hard to see in the moment. But on the other side of it, we can see God working. So what's true? God is working in his sovereignty through situations and suffering. So what do we do with all this? Trust God in the trial. That is, trust is an action. It's active, though there's not a whole lot we do. So let's read our text together. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And... A man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. I like Chilion. They were, I'm about to butcher this. I, I have to say this word a couple times this morning, and I've yet to say it the same way twice, so just buckle up. Ephratites, yeah, that's not how I said it last time either, from Bethlehem, Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These two took Moabite wives 
The names of one was Orpah, and the other name was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malion and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her sons and her husband. So here's the situation. There is a famine in the land. The question we need to ask from this story and, and that applies to our lives is, is this thing, is this situation, it, is it a product of, of a situation, this bad thing, or is the pain an outcome of the sweet and, ho, uh, and sovereign hand of the Almighty God? Uh, we've used this word sovereignty a couple of times, and this is one that kind of makes people shift in their shoes. Sovereign means simply to reign over all. And, and that's how God presents himself in the Bible. He presents himself as this great cosmic king who reigns over all things that happen in his creation. And so this, is, this, this idea of sovereignty, it's an uncomfortable truth that's just, it's in the Bible, so we're not going to skirt it. it and the, the uncomfortable truth is this, that God even though he's sovereign, he's sovereign over our suffering and uses it to bring himself glory. We are vessels in the hand of God. For instance, let's, let's look about at, at how he used different things to bring about his pur uh, purposes. God sent nations to oppress Israel when they were in sin, right? To draw them back to God. Do you think there's suffering and pain in that? For a foreign country to come and kill your army and to take over your land. Pain and suffering. And it drew the nation's hearts back to God. Well, let's, 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 New Testament. God used the sin of Judas, of the Sanhedrin, of the Pharisees, of the Romans, of all these different people groups and peoples to bring about the suffering and the execution of Jesus for his ultimate purpose of saving the world. Some people want to act like that it's not within God's plan for his people to suffer, for those he suffer, for those he loves to suffer. Well, he loves Jesus more than anyone. And it was totally part of his plan that Jesus would suffer for his greater glory. So God tells story after story showing how he ordains events that happen for his glory and our good. God is sovereign over the situations in your life, even the ones that hurt. And he tells us over and over again. He shows us over and over again. It's for his glory and for our good. And I'm, I'm trying to walk this tightrope up here because we've got to press in or we're going to miss the truth in the book as a whole. The reality is this truth makes us feel uncomfortable, but when, we, when it's understood and embraced, it will give us comfort. Romans 8, 28 says this, And we know for those who God loves, all things work together for good. How many things? What things? Some things? Suffering and pain are all. And we know that for those who love God, 
all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Is this a promise to all men that, that, that uh, he's using all their suffering for good? All those who love God for the saints. God will not waste one ounce of your suffering because he loves us and he's working all things together for our good and for his purposes, for his glory. So God's not wasting when our loved ones die and we experience that suffering and that loss and that pain. That's not wasted. Um, God's not wasting the loss of your job. He's not wasting whenever you get that terminal diagnosis and you're, you're passing away. He's not wasting these things. I mean, think about how many of these things, like when, when, when things happen to you, when suffering happens to you, how on the other side of it, you then get to minister to someone else. You have empathy in a different way for someone else. And you're, you press in and you love them. It's not a comfortable truth, but God uses it. The call is for us to trust. And for us to trust, you know what that means? We have to give up control. This man we find in the text, this man from Bethlehem, he decides not to trust, but to take control over his situation. Look at verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Famines were a big deal back in the day. Famines are a big deal now. What does a famine mean? No food, no water. No food, no water, death. Like, famines are a big deal. Let's not take this lightly. How severe was this famine? We don't know. I don't particularly think it was too bad because in chapter 2 of the book of Ruth, we find all of Bethlehem still inhabited and people still work in their fields. So probably not too bad. Um, but it was de definitely severe enough that Elimelech, which means uh, El, God, Malek, um, king, God is my king. Well, Elimelech didn't trust God as king, and he moved his family to a more comfortable situation in Moab. Uh, we find this, this story takes place in the time of the judges. So let's, regardless of how severe the, the, the physical famine was in the land, if you've read the book of Judges, we know that there is clearly a spiritual famine in the land. And the whole nation of Israel is experiencing it. The stories in the Judges, they're a lot of fun to read, but it reveals the state of Israel spiritually as corrupt and just totally devastated. And this is the condemnation that comes down over and over and over and over on the nation of Israel. And if this is true for you, this is not a, this is, this is a condemnation. It, it kept saying, it says over and over and over in the book of uh, Judges as an editor's note, or not an editor, author's note, as each man did what was right in his own eyes. That, that's not saying something positive. So I think this story of Ruth takes place in the lifetime of Eli and Samuel, you, you remember those guys from 1 Samuel, don't you? They're kind of the last judge figures 
prior to the kingdom being established with the first monarchy. Um, you know, the first monarch wasn't David, it was Saul. But then Samuel goes and anoints David. The book of Ruth is like a biblical linchpin taking us from the time of the judges to the time of the kings. And that's where it's situated in the Bible. It, like, just so you know, the, we didn't randomly put the Bible together. It makes sense. <laughs> so from the time of the judges to the time of 1 Samuel, you see the judges go away and God choose to lead his nation in a different way through a king. So Ruth, our book's namesake, is the great-grandmother of King David, who Jesus would eventually come from. So we're going to spend a lot of time putting this timeline together and understanding the situation. Um, so the question we need to ask is, what do we know about the judges? What do we know about the time of the judges? And it comes shortly after Israel has come into the promised land. So we're going to rewind way back so that we can fast forward to where we're at because, again, context creates meaning, all right? So let's go backwards to God delivering Israel. You'll remember from your Bible reading that Israel was enslaved for 430 years and God was silent in that time. Now, God told Abraham way before that that this was going to happen and God finally responds to the cries of his people and he, he sent plagues and he sent death. And, and finally, the Egyptians said, all right, y'all can go free. Y'all go do your thing. And this is what's crazy. At the time, Egypt was the strongest and wealthiest nation in the world. And God won their freedom without Israel ever having to throw a stone, throw a javelin, or swing a, a, a sword. And they were so ready for Israel to leave. This is, this is something that's missed. Egypt, each home in Egypt was giving them gold just so that they would go away. Israel left Egypt. In one day, they went from being an impoverished, enslaved people group to one of the wealthier nations in the world. They didn't swing a sword. So Pharaoh, he gets all up in his feelings. He's mad. Um, his nation's been plundered. They've, they've taken much of the gold. His cheap labor's gone. So then Pharaoh decides to pursue with his army the, 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 the people of Israel. He's going he's to go get them and bring them back. And this sets the stage for one of the coolest and most famous scenes in biblical history. So the Egyptian war, war machine is pursuing the people of God out into the desert. And there, you got to see this. There's hundreds of thousands of people on this. And the, the, the Israelites are unarmed, and God drops a firebomb, wall of fire right between them. And he holds the nation of, of Egypt back, the, the, the warriors of Egypt back with this wall of fire, and then opens up the Red Sea and allows them to walk through on dry ground. And then God baits them in. He releases the, he moves the wall of fire. They charge in and he kills the entire army, proving that God is their defender. So the next scene that we find ourselves in, the next big scene is Israel receiving the law, Israel receiving their covenant with God. 
God takes them to Mount Sinai where he gives them the law to be passed down from generation to generation and tells them to be careful to keep what's in the law. And God makes a covenant with Israel promising that he would be faithful to his side of the covenant, that he would keep up his end of the deal. And then Israel, they come together with one voice and they do this over and over again throughout um, Exodus through Numbers and say, we will keep the law. We will do all that you've said. We will keep our end of the covenant. But of course, they couldn't. And the story of Israel in the wilderness is from one instance to the other of them breaking faith and them, and them not holding up their end of the covenant. So let's fast forward. Finally, after 40 years, he's going, God's finally going to let them have this promised land that he promised way, 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 way long ago to Abraham. Like, all this stuff is interconnected. And so he, finally, they're looking into the promised land, but Moses broke faith with God too. And God allowed that entire generation that came out of Egypt to die away. Moses dies on a mountaintop looking into Egypt, or not into, into the promised land, into Canaan. And after he dies, his apprentice named Joshua leads the nation. At last, they cross the Jordan River they received the promised land, the land that was promised by covenant to Abraham. Israel had to fight many battles, but God gave them, as he told them, a land that flows with milk and honey, a land that has cities that they didn't build, vineyards that they didn't plant, homes that they, and they just got to walk in. And after the nations are defeated, God gives each of the 12 tribes of Israel an inheritance. And each one was to pass their land down and their name. And so we don't think the land's that big of a deal. But each person, each family, each clan received an inheritance. And that land was proof. It was a monument to the covenant that God made with Israel as a reminder. So this land is a big deal. The book of Joshua concludes with Israel almost in full possession of the land. And here's Joshua's uh, final words. And this is what I want you to, to, to see, that the information I'm giving you, it's not random information, but we see how we get to the spiritual famine in Ruth, okay? So Joshua 24.20 says this. These are his final words. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after, you, uh, after having done you good. Spoiler alert, if you've not read Joshua, uh, Judges and Joshua, and they don't listen to Joshua. They don't keep the law. They don't keep the covenant. And then that's, that's when we fall into this. So the book of Judges starts out with the people being faithful. Within one generation of Joshua, one, not five, not ten, one generation of Joshua, it says that they forgot the law and they broke the covenant. So Judges 2.10 says this, And there rose another generation after them, that's talking about Joshua, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done. It took one generation 
from the life of Joshua for the people to forget what God had done for Israel. The, the Red Sea, all the wars, giving them the land, giving them the, the, the literally the, the land they're standing on and the homes they're living in and the fruit from the vine, God gave them that and they forgot within one generation. And hear this, if you're not faithful teaching your children the ways of God, you can be certain that your children and your grandchildren will not know God. And that's a good reason to be reading the Bible to your kids every night. Look, maybe your grandpa, grandma, and you, you don't have access to the kids every day. How about setting up Mondays and Thursdays, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, a FaceTime where you just read them a story out of the Bible. Do whatever you can to put the Bible in their hands. It took one generation for them to forget. Get your kids in church. Get your children in the children's ministry. Get your children in the youth ministry. Get your, send them on mission trips. Send them on church camps. Send them on the things. Get them into the word. Because if you don't, they're not going to know God. They, on graduation Sunday, uh, Brandon prayed a prayer over the graduates. And I love this prayer. Me and my wife talk, had been talking about it. And it was, he said something like this, that they wouldn't see this season not as a graduation from church, but as a door into the next phase of walking with the Lord. How do we make sure they walk with him? How do we make sure our children walk with him? We have to make God important in our homes. Not, not like they did in the book of Galatians. Not this legalism mess but genuine faith and, and living in a way that gives grace. We have to make God important in our homes so that they will make God important in their homes. So Judges has what we call the sin cycle. So the nation of Israel, they sin, they go downhill, and God sends in another nation to oppress them. And then they're like, oh God, we're so sorry that we started worshiping false gods and forgot about you. And then God would send a judge or a warrior or somebody and they would run the bad guys off. And they would, yay God, we love you so much. And then shortly after, and then God would send them a judge. And then like over and over and it's the same cycle all the way through the book. So they're repeatedly enslaved by other countries. On top of all the political unrest and godlessness, there is a famine in the land. In the time of the judges, life was hard. Life was brutal. And the Bible tells us the thesis of the book of Judges in, in Judges 21-25. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. That's not a good thing. And like I said, this is repeated all the way throughout the book. And it made for a turbulent world, and the world that Naomi and Ruth find themselves in is turbulent spiritually, turbulent politically, and it's turbulent financially. And I don't know where you're at, but one of these things hits where you are. So let's look back at the text. We looked at the large scale. We zoomed way, way, way out. We're not doing that next week. And now we're going to zoom way in to finish out our time together. 
So we see from the house of bread to the house of idols. Let's look at our text again, starting halfway through verse 1. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in a country of Moab, and he and his wife and his two sons. The name of one was, uh, of the, the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. And they were, here's that word, Ephrathites. That's not how I said it last time. From Bethlehem in Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and they remained there. The word Bethlehem means house of bread. What irony that there is a famine in the house of bread. This is likely a result of Israel's disobedience. So again, I want us to ask this question. Is the famine, is this hardship a product of a situation or a picture of God's sovereignty? My answer is going to be yes, both. I believe the text reveals that God is weaving these situations together to produce his desired outcome. God used a famine to drive the weak-willed Elimelech from Bethlehem for the purpose of his son marrying a Moabite woman named Ruth so that the son would die, so that Elimelech would die, and it would force Ruth and Naomi as widows to go back to the house of bread. And there she would meet, as God ordained, a man named Boaz so that she would catch Boaz's eye, so that they would be the great-grandparents of David, so that he would bring his son to earth and die for our sins and to redeem us and to make, his bride, make us his bride forever. That's what I think we see in this book. You can conclude that this is a product of a situation, or you can conclude this is a picture of sovereignty. I think God desires to seek out and save Ruth, this pagan Moabitess. And God sovereignly moved a, family, a famine and a family to turn a pagan's heart to praise for the one true God. Elimelech does not seem to seek God's will, but he seems to be seeking a better situation and he moves his family to Moab. Like, that's a condemnation on him. Like when it says, and they took Moabite wives, if you're an ancient reader, if you're a first century reader, you would go, oh. So Moab, the, the Moabites tried to keep Israel from going into the land at the end of the numbers. The Moabites, like how we get to the Moabites, Mo, Moab means from the father. Remember when Lot, um, they leave? and the, uh, they leave Sodom and Gomorrah, and the fire falls down from heaven and destroys Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, his daughters think they're the last people on earth, and they uh, get them drunk and seduce them. Moab, from the father. When they saw Moabites in this, they went to Moab? They got Moabite wives? Moabites are the biblical bad guys, and worst of all, they worship false gods and they are enemies to God Almighty. They are enemies to Israel. Our text tells us that they sojourned into Moab, making it sound like it was just going to be for a season, but they ended up settling there. 
they, uh, Ruth 1-2 says, and they went into the country of Moab and they remained there. They went there for prosperity and I guess they found it because they stayed. Have you ever asked yourself, like, why does Israel just keep choosing idols? Or do you just read the story and take it for what it is? Let me answer the question. It's because idols come with promises. The idols come with promises. These little weird-looking things, if you've ever went to a museum, you can see them. These little weird-looking things are poorly carved trinkets. Idolatry promised prosperity and wealth. They were worshiping fertility gods. And you go pray, you go give your sacrifice, you go do the different things. And the promise is that your wife's womb would be full. And by, by children, you now have a workforce and that makes you a wealthy man. Um, you, you, you go and you do the things and the promise is that your livestock would be blessed. Well, a blessed livestock means money in your pocket. The, the fertility gods promised a crop. Again, that's, that's wealth, that's comfort. We can act like they're crazy for leaving the protection of God for an empty promise, but church, don't we fall into this thing all the time? Trading the things of God for the hope of trivial promises that will make us comfortable, that will make us happy, that will make us wealthy. Elimelech plants his family there in the middle of all this idolatry. And the only thing I can assume, because they did take these Moabite wives, and Ruth, the end of Ruth 1 shows that these wives are still worshiping these false gods, is that the family started worshiping the false gods too. They allowed it into their home. I think this is a good word for us. For the promise of prosperity, what are we doing to our children? Are we neglecting them for that promotion, for that next degree, for that next, you fill in the blank? Are we sacrificing our children's spiritual well-being for the hope of their future success by pursuing their hobbies for scholarships? One generation, one generation and they forgot. Elimelech, as many of us, as, as I have done, has made a trade, the spiritual well-being of his family for the hope of comfort and prosperity. And by Naomi's comment in Ruth 1.15, I think this shows the spiritual state of her family. Look at this on the screen. So she's already sent Orpah back, this one sister. And she says, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to, to her people and her, to her guys. Return after your sister-in-law. Instead of, hey, we know Yahweh of Israel, come with me. Come to the house of bread. The law, the law requires us to take in a sojourner. No, you go back. You go back and worship your gods. You go to hell. Because her going back is a damnation on her. And she was okay with it for Orpah. 
It does not seem Yahweh was the only acceptable form of worship under the leadership of Elimelech. Elimelech left from the town of Bethlehem in Judah. And our author is showing us, this is beautiful. All this is foreshadowing Jesus. It's all foreshadowing the King, uh, King David. So we, we see that he's from the tribe of Judah. And he goes on to show us that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And it even narrows and nuances down from what clan in Judah that Jesus is going to come. It's that weird E word I can't say, but let's, let's look at Micah. Because over and over and over, like Jesus on the road to Emmaus, so he's died, he's come back to life, and he's walking with these disciples, and they don't know it's him. And he starts explaining the Old Testament and how the whole, all the Old Testament, how all of the Old Testament was about Jesus. It either is about him or it isn't. And Jesus says it is, and all this stuff is about and centered on Jesus. And it's pointing to Jesus. Let's look at Micah 5 too. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, though they are, from you shall come forth uh, for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. King David's already passed. Who's coming forth from old, from ancient days. How could this one be from ancient days? Spoiler alert, he's God. Verse three, therefore he shall give them up until the time when, when she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. The Old Testament promises that this, this, this Messiah that's coming would be a good shepherd and a good king. That he would come from the, the house of Judah, from the tribe of Judah, from, from, from the town of Bethlehem, and from this little tribe, this little, this little clan within the tribe of Judah that we don't even talk about. The Ephraimites. <laughs> That's how, that's how narrowed down we get to Jesus. And Micah is hundreds of years before the Christ. So, God is silent in the book of Ruth. But look at how the Lord is weaving together these, these things, these people's lives, and working out these situations to bring his son in order to save them from their sin to save us from our sin. So last thing, let's look at the problem. This is, this is where we'll leave for today. So here's the problem. The, the, the problem was that he, uh, the, the problem was that there were no heirs. The problem was that they needed a redeemer. Uh, Naomi and Ruth, there were no sons in verse four and five, there were no children. The bloodline wasn't going to continue. And God had given, this is why we talked about the land agnosium earlier, because the land matters. There was no one to work the land. The covenant of God, what was going to happen to it? Because that, that little piece of land was to be a monument to that family of God's covenant. There's a problem. 
There's no one to work it. There's no one to occupy it. Naomi's going back to Israel poor. And from context later, because somebody's got to pay the price, I'm assuming they're indebted on the land. Um, She herself is going to be unable to occupy it. But the law has a provision. You know how we act like the law is nasty and the law is oppressive? The law had a plan for a situation just like this. And that would be a gil, a redeemer, one who would buy the land and continue the family's name of the one who's died. And God set this up in the law to perpetuate family lines. And this, this, this redeemer had to be of the same family line. So if, if uh, he, to be able to redeem the property, you had to be a kinsman. So in the book of Ruth, we talk about this kinsman redeemer. A kinsman um, could redeem the property if, uh, if there was no widow. All he had to do was go and um, pay the land, and then he could give it back to the, 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 the closest family member in 50 years. Um, so God even made it to where if you bought the land, you got blessed for it too. But if there was a widow, this made it a little trickier. You had to marry the widow. And, you know, the Old Testament's all about the firstborn son, right? Like that... You don't get to keep your firstborn son. The firstborn son is to carry the name of the deceased husband so that his name would be perpetuated and the land would be worked and it would stay in that family. So the person had to be wealthy enough and had to desire to to buy the land back, to redeem it. So another problem was Ruth, uh, Naomi had these two Moabite daughter-in-laws, and what self-respecting Jew would marry a Moabite? So now she's got a big problem because her her daughters-in-law are the next in line. I mean, she could have went and maybe found a husband, maybe like, and and the name be perpetuated, but she's not in line now. It's now it's these Moabite daughter-in-laws, and who's going to marry them? She needed a kinsman redeemer who, in accordance with the law, was, was a relative, and they had to be willing to pay the debt, and they had to be willing to pay the debt in full. Kind of sounds like a long shot, right, at this point. Who could do that for her? Who could pay the debt on the land? Who would be willing to marry Ruth? Who would, who would uh, pull them out of this devastating situation? The book of Ruth, though filled with pain, is a beautiful love story. It's a story about a man named Boaz who we'll meet much later. And Boaz is the one who's willing to do and pay whatever price for the sake of love. Boaz is Ruth's kinsman redeemer. Boaz is, is, is foreshadowing Jesus Christ. Our text leaves us with this problem in in verse 5. And we see Naomi, she's widowed, she's heartbroken, she's alone, she's in an alien country with two widowed daughter-in-laws that she can't do anything with. And her only hope is to go back to the promised land where there's a kinsman redeemer who would pay for all of her problems or she's going to be relegated to a life of poverty until she dies. That's, That's Naomi's situation. And like I said, this is all foreshadowing Jesus. God in the law was preparing the way for Jesus to come on the scene as the kinsman redeemer who would redeem us from our sin and our sorrow. 
Boaz is the picture of the kinsman redeemer, Jesus. Have you ever wondered why Jesus had to be a man? It's because of the law. For Jesus to be able to redeem us from our sin, for Jesus to be able to redeem us from our debt to God, according to the law, he had to become like us. We needed one that was, was, a, was a brother. Jesus became, God came to earth and became man. He became our, our next to kin. And he paid our debt for us by dying on the cross. So that whoever would believe would have eternal life. He paid that debt in full. Our debt was great and his love was greater. Not only did he have the desire to redeem us, he had the ability to redeem us. And he does. And if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ today, he will redeem you from your sin. I'd love to have that conversation over here with you. I'm, we're going to sing a song and I'm going to be there. But maybe that's not where you're at. I want you to know that Jesus is the great lover of your soul. And maybe you're, you find yourself in a situation where you don't feel like God knows or cares. God knew the situation of this random Moabite woman thousands of years ago. He knew her situation, and he knows your situation, and he does care. And he's calling you to trust, but a call to trust is a call to relinquish control. To say, God, if it costs me my life, if it costs me my, the life of the ones I love, it, whatever the cost, I relinquish control. I trust you. And you're going to find that peace that passes all understanding. And you're going to find comfort knowing that God's not wasting any of your suffering. So let's, let's pray together.